trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. As always, we have a lot to talk about. And once a week, my friend Eric Peters swings by from ericpetersautos.com just to give us his take on uh, the passing scene. Eric, uh, how does life find you this week? Well, I'm a little bit concerned that I'm going to get red flagged for uh, speaking wrong, wrong, thinkful things with you on the radio and writing them in my columns. Boy, that's, you know, that's a legitimate fear, too. And let's let's talk about this. Red flag laws apparently are on the table. The the school yeah. shootings in, in the one in, uh, well, actually, the school shooting in Texas and the uh, supermarket shooting in Buffalo apparently to be apparently have given enough momentum to Congress that they feel they're going to be bipartisan and they're going to get some kind of gun control passed, most likely red flag legislation. Yeah, the accommodationist rhino Republicans will, uh, as usual, facilitate the left's uh, further evisceration of whatever's left of our rights. But what I'd like to harp on this morning, they smile these things, red flag laws. And I find that very ironic because essentially what it means is that you are to be deprived of your rights uh, without having violated any law. The way these things work, uh, it takes nothing more than an assertion of some person. Uh, I don't know which particular person, perhaps uh, it's a concerned neighbor, perhaps it's a judge. Um, but regardless, the point is, you can have the hut, hut, hut crew sent to your home and have all of your firearms confiscated simply on the say-so of somebody, not because you have done anything, let alone violated the law, much less been convicted of having violated the law. You know, in the past, you had to have done something for them to punish you, particularly with regard to guns. But now that's changing. And I think the broader point here is that this potentially could set a precedent that would expand far beyond guns. You know, if we're dangerous because of what we say or what we write, uh, well, then certainly what we say and write ought to be red flagged, too. And, you know, this is a really alarming thing. And, you know, I, I have to point out to my friends on the Republican side that uh, one of the one of the things that the orange man did was to promote these very red flag laws that we're now having to deal with because of the left that took over after he left. Yeah, it's it was one of Trump's uh, bigger mistakes you know, there were there were some places where he did a wonderful job of frustrating the slow roll of Leviathan. This was not one mm-hmm. of them. But I agree with you, Eric. The danger here isn't so much that, uh, you know, it, it's not just a matter of, oil. Well, it's infringing on people's gun rights. It's that it sets up such a, a broad and easily abused tool for which someone who's aggrieved could be an ex-wife. It could be just a, you know, a political opponent. Yeah. It could be somebody who's, who's upset because Eric said something in one of his columns that I didn't agree with, and they decide, I'm going to drop a dime on you, and the state springs into action without due process. Exactly. Uh, once upon a time, a long time ago, the Supreme Court said something about the chilling effect, and they were referring to free speech, of course, but it's the same here. Gun, noter- gun owners are being put on notice that they better be very careful about uh, what they like on Facebook, what they post on Twitter, because some woke left person uh, might flag it and then stick the red flag hut hut hutters on them. So this thing has to be beaten back really hard. And I think one way to do that uh, is to uh, get rid of these accommodationist rhino Republicans 
who constantly further the agenda of the left. Uh, and I see no point in having a right if the right is simply going to serve as the amen corner of the left. No, here, here. It's it's a scary thing in the sense that, uh, you know, there's no shortage of people who are willing to use government as a weapon. And and that's I think that's actually the, the source of most of the conflict we see in, in the country today, including, you know, what we see, you know, growing tendency for people to get violent on various sides of, of the political spectrum just because they perceive if I don't, you know, somebody's going to use government against me. So I guess they feel like they have nothing to lose. Well, that and I think another aspect of this uh, that's worth discussing is the frustration felt by many people who aren't uh, on the left uh, at what's going on. And I'm not by any stretch of the imagination attempting to justify it. I'm simply pointing out that people are getting really tired of the glaring and blatant hypocrisy of things. For example, uh, recently there was an an attempted assassination of a Supreme Court justice. You know, we're talking about somebody who actually came to the home of a Supreme Court justice with a weapon, with intent to kill the man. And that story has just disappeared. Meanwhile, we're constantly being lectured about January 6th, January 6th. Oh, yeah. You know, where, you know, which is styled an insurrection when it was just a, 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 a riot that got out of hand and where nobody was killed except, of course, for one poor woman who was shot by a cop. Uh, and, you know, people see this 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 discontinuity, this disjunction, this, this this standard for uh, one side and then this other standard for the other side. And it's making people very angry and, you know, angry and angry people, unfortunately, sometimes tend to act out in ways that aren't healthy. No, I hear you. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm so disgusted by the show trial. I don't even watch it. Um, I do catch some pretty interesting, uh, you know, synopsis of it on Twitter, but for the most part, it's, it's simply politicians who, for some reason, can't understand why so much of the country hates them. And they're trying mm-hmm. to, to stay, sit there and look stern and, and yet concerned and play the victim for the camera. And, and somehow, at the same time, try to, to convince the rest of us that we need them. Sure. And by the way, I think that brings up another interesting uh, thing I've been mulling over. And I wrote about this a few days ago, which is that this, this is the first time in my memory uh, as a political commentator, as a wrong thinker, that the party that's in power doesn't seem to care that everybody hates them, per what you just said a moment ago. Even in the, the bluest of blue states, I think Biden's best numbers are in the low 40s, very low 40s. And on average, he's in the low 30s around the country, and in many states, he's in the 20s. It's as if they don't care anymore that there are, there are elections coming up. And you know, the creepy thought that, that pops into my mind is maybe they think there aren't going to be elections or they have such control over the election that they're going to uh, not have to worry about being thrown out of office a few months from now. You know, you are uh, you are not the first person to bring that up to me. And so I I have to wonder, too, if, if things are going to get bad enough. I mean, look at the totality of all the things that are piling up right now. Uh, the cost of gas is an easy one because everybody feels like they've been mm-hmm. sucker punched when they go to gas up. But uh, the cost mm-hmm. of groceries, the the uh, enormous amount of food facilities that have been shut down either through, you know, fires or other damage, the culling of huge herds of, of uh, poultry, something fishy is going on here. And it sure feels like we're being backed into a corner where if we don't cooperate, someone's going to try to starve us into submission. Sure. And, you know, one of the possibilities that's crossed my mind, and, you know, again, saying this with a grain of salt, I'm not saying I think this is necessarily going to happen, but Given what's happened, I don't put it beyond the realm of possibility. Given the way uh, energy is being artificially made unaffordable and the effect that's having 
on food production as well as the ability of people to buy food. What if, uh, you know, project forward a couple of months and gas is $10 a gallon and the supermarkets suddenly are bereft of food because the truckers can't afford to bring it to, to the stores anymore. And all of a sudden, people are starting to freak out about the prospect of not being able to eat. And there are riots, uh, you know, all around the country, in cities particularly, where people generally don't have more than a day or two's worth of food on hand. Uh, and what then? Well, oh, Joe Biden declares martial law and suspends the elections. You know, something like that is a conceivable threat, given everything that's happened. Remember, keep in mind what they have done to us over the past three years. And that gives us a window, I think, into what they're fully capable of doing if they think they can get away with it. No, I think you're right. In fact, I uh, let me let me sound like Chicken Little here for a moment. If if and when the Supreme Court gets around to releasing its ruling that will very likely overturn Roe v. Wade, they they could have done it yesterday. They chose not to. But uh, when mm-hmm. they do that, I think that may very well be the uh, go signal for certain people on the left who are just looking for an excuse, looking for that reason to go out and get violent in the streets, like we saw two years ago. Sure. I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if there are pallets of bricks already being deposited uh, in uh, cities around the country preparatory to that. And of course, when the cities do go up in smoke, as I think they probably will, then it will be described as peaceful protesters who are simply expressing their great rage at this unjust uh, and awful verdict that the Supreme Court handed down. You know, again, it's telling that uh, two years ago when thugs burned down cities and actually did kill people uh, and actually caused, uh, I don't know how many, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of damage, uh, oh, that, that was no big deal. No inquiries there, no, uh, no looking into what caused that, no uh, holding accountable of the groups, the organized groups like Antifa that were involved in that. Right. Meanwhile, right. Uh, you know, the people who just showed up in Washington uh, are to be treated as some kind of, uh, you know, insurrectionist army that was trying to overthrow the government. Yep. It's a pretty lopsided uh, playing field right now and and definitely one that I think is calculated to make all of us think twice uh, before we open our mouths. Hold that thought, Mm -hmm. Eric. We've got some other important things to talk about. We're up against the break here. My guest is Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. If you uh, go to my show notes, you'll find a link that will take you directly to his website. Strongly recommend you check out his articles. He covers a number of very relevant topics, including all things with wheels, which is, is fun. You'll also learn a lot from the comments. He's got some very smart people that follow him and comment on those pages. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. All right, Eric, uh, high gas prices, I'm sure, have a lot of people thinking, man, maybe I should just go ahead and plunk down all that money I don't have and buy myself an electric vehicle. <laughs> and uh, you you actually had a really great column about, uh, you know, a funeral for a friend, uh, mm-hmm. talking about, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing the internal combustion engine going out. T- tell me about this particular friend that, that we're saying goodbye to. Well, let's preface it by saying that the way these lefties want us to deal with High gas prices is with high car prices by forcing electrification onto everybody, which costs a whole lot more even than $5 a gallon gas does. Uh, and the article gets into the artificially induced of one of the most successful engines of the past 20 years. 
and everybody listening to this will know about the Chrysler Hemi V8 that's been in a number of Chrysler, Dodge, Jeep, and Ram truck vehicles, and which I think has uh, has defined them and, and separated them from the run of the mill, and that's what's made them so popular. So why is it being pulled off the market? Dodge announced that they're not going to be building them after the 2024 model year. Not because people aren't buying them, but because the government has made it essentially impossible for them to continue building that engine. And so it's going to be replaced by an inline six-cylinder turbocharged engine probably with some form of partial electrification, batteries and motors, mm. uh, with a nominal increase in, in mileage for the sake of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Of course, you know, that's just like wearing a mask to stop the virus. It's another one of these manufactured crises that's being used as the pretext justification for simply forcing everybody ultimately into a purely electric car, assuming they can afford to drive it, which I don't think eight out of 10 Americans will be able to do. Unbelievable. I mean, it, look, I, I understand people wanting to, to care for the environment. I understand people wanting to, you know, go with a cleaner route. Or maybe it's just the novelty of, hey, this thing accelerates really fast. But there's there seems to be some ideological blinders at work here. I saw the picture of a, of a coal train, like a, a train mm-hmm. just filled with coal. And the caption under it said, fuel for electric cars. <laughs> I went, wow. Sure. <laughs> that that sure. pretty much and says what it is. That. It's not just that, you know, I've been referring to electric cars for some time now as energy hogs, you know, to riff off of the, uh, the, the, the term of abuse that's heaped on gas engine cars, particularly those with V8 and V6 engines, they're called gas hogs. Well, these electric cars are energy hogs because it takes a tremendous amount of energy to deliver the ludicrous speed that many of them have, and also uh, for them to be even remotely practical as highway vehicles in order to get an electric car that's capable of going 200 miles, let's say, uh, at 75 miles an hour down the highway, you've got to have a massive battery pack. The typical EV has a 1,000-pound battery pack, enormously heavy. Uh, it takes a ton of energy to power it, and uh, thereby, you know, you're giving the lie to this whole nonsense about how you're being, whoa, you're being helpful to the environment. How does it help the environment to increase the demand for electricity, the majority of which is produced by burning coal natural gas and oil it just it, it doesn't it doesn't pencil out it makes no sense except in a political sense yeah and and of course uh, i i don't know if you've seen this the the reel of um it's it's trump warning during the campaign of 2020 uh about what biden would do to the energy industry and then it cuts to biden mm-hmm. talking about exactly that's what he plans to do there's gonna be no more drilling we're gonna we're gonna close it all mm-hmm. down and and this has been the plan from the beginning so it, it troubles me when, when we hear all the blaming of Putin and, and everything else when this this is an engineered demolition of the energy sector and, and we're all getting to pay the price for it. I agree, but this is why uh, it's such a tragedy with regard to the orange man because none of this had to happen. And it happened, I think, ultimately because the orange man went along with this leftist attempt to weaponize hypochondria very successfully and create this manufactured pandemic, which led to, among other things, election months rather than election day, and led to the counting of uh, an unprecedented number of absentee ballots that were counted before they were vetted. And so the orange man was removed from office, and we got Joe Biden. That's the bottom line. You know, so while I loathe Joe Biden and these woke leftists, I ultimately blame the orange man for what's going on right now. Wow. Well, 
I mean, if you're going to be consistent in your principles, you've got to you've got to be consistent, and you can't just you know shout MAGA. Yeah. you know, to, I'm not to giving him a pass just because he, he did a number of really laudable and good things, but then he, uh, in my opinion, erased all of it by doing uh, some much worse things by ceding ground to the left, and this is the constant serial mistake of the opposition, if you want to call it that, because I think it's a very effective opposition. It always lets the left win. The left wins. You know, we hear, we hear uh, you know, a nice talk from the right, from the Republicans, but when uh, rubber meets the road, they always fold and the left always wins. Wow. No, it's so let me ask you this for, for people who, who still want to maintain that degree of autonomy, you know, to, to still drive an internal com- combustion engine vehicle. Um, I mean, the choices are pretty slim right now. Mm-hmm. Used cars, not an easy thing to find, especially, you know, uh, finding a, a good deal on a used car. Is is there yep. anything that makes more sense than not for people who are determined to, to operate under fossil fuel power? Yeah, well, you know, I'm going to write a piece uh, in anticipation of July 4th, uh, riffing on Independence Day and Instead of uh, remembering our independence as a country from Great Britain, I think it's time to start thinking about our independence from government at an individual level and doing what we can to disconnect from it. And, of course, one of the ways to do that is to make yourself as self-sufficient as possible, to make yourself uh, as as little reliant upon these centralized structures uh, and entities. It's not just the government. It's the corporations that have become the de facto proxy arms of the government. Mm-hmm. So if you have an older vehicle, hold on to it, you know, and if you haven't got one, it might be a really good idea to put some money into it, particularly the way money is being devalued right now, and just do what you can to reduce what you have to spend outside of the home so that you can be more secure within your home. Those are, you know, a few of the things I'm trying to do. For example, I, uh, I raise chickens and ducks now, and I'm very strongly considering expanding that uh, to goats and even cows because I have the land to do it. I know not everybody does. But most people do have the ability to grow a garden, uh, even if you live in an apartment. If you've got a balcony, you can grow a garden. And if you have a quarter acre of land, you can grow a pretty big garden. And you could also have a couple of chickens. You know, so things like that, I think, are, are, are very good things to think about doing. Yep, I, I would agree. I, I'm still looking for that holy grail of, uh, you know, a car that's reliable, gets decent mileage, maybe something simple enough I can fix myself that doesn't, you mm-hmm. know, require, you know, all kinds of digital diagnostic meters to, to work on. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know. Well, I can think of a number of those. You know, like if you went back to the 90s, mid-90s, look for a Geo. You remember the Geo Metro when Chevy had the Geo division? Now, oh, yeah. yeah, this was a, a little car with a three-cylinder engine. And a manual transmission that uh, got, I think, close to 60 miles per gallon. And I know people who have them and who uh, have told me that they can hypermile that thing and get 70 out of that thing. And it's a very simple and basic car. Another good one of the same same era, a little bit older, is the Honda CRX uh, HF, I think it was. There are a number of vehicles like that that were made in the late 80s, early 90s that get phenomenal gas mileage. And that anybody who's capable of reading a service manual and doing a basic tune-up can, can maintain almost indefinitely. Wow. Well, it's it's a matter of being informed, and I'm going to point them toward your website, not just on, on automotive matters, although they'll learn a lot there, but also if they want to be better informed and better uh, uh, have more clarity as to, to why it's appropriate to make this stand, why it's appropriate to put their foot down and say no, mm-hmm. you give them some great food for thought. Anything else they can expect well, to find when they get to your website? Sure. I mean, we're an omnibus site. There's almost anything you can imagine there. I did want to mention that anybody listening to this program 
uh, who's maybe not too knowledgeable about older cars, but is interested in getting an older vehicle and maybe having getting some advice about which one to get and what to look for. I'm happy to provide that. It's not a, anything I charge for. I do it for free. Uh, just click on the little button that says Ask Eric, and I'll be happy to, to do my best to try to answer the questions. Okay. Again, that's ericpetersautos.com. I've got a link to uh, to it in the website, in the, my show notes, rather, at uh, com. Well, Eric, hang in there. Everything gets interestinger and interestinger as we go. I look forward to our conversation next week, my friend. Ditto, Brian. Thanks for having me on. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. A quick shout out here to sewingandquiltingcenter.com. They're located in St. George, Utah. You'll find a link in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. And if you or someone you know has any interest whatsoever in sewing or quilting or embroidery, these are the guys you want to talk to. And if you live in southern Utah, you are in great luck. In fact, if you're within 200 miles of southern Utah, you are in luck because this is the most complete full-service sewing and quilting store that you're ever going to find. Every machine you could possibly need, from entry-level machines for under $200 up to the very top-of-the-line five-figure long-arm quilting machines. They've got them. They'll teach you how to use them. They actually offer free classes when you purchase a machine from them. They'll show you how to put that machine to good use. They can service your sewing or quilting or embroidery machines, even if you didn't buy it from them. And they have all the supplies you'll need as well. It's all in one place. Sewingandquiltingcenter.com. So I got a couple of fairly heavy topics I'm going to get into in a few moments, but I got to take a quick break. This is like my dandelion break. And I just, I was so happy to see this pop up on my Facebook memories. I spend less time on Facebook today than I have in a long time. And I do like to go through the memories occasionally to see what was I doing this time last year or a couple of years ago. And it turns out two years ago today was the first time that I spoke with my biological father. And it's, it's, it's been a fun story. It's been a very interesting journey. But uh, I actually established contact with him. And um, after a little email back and forth, we found each other on 23andMe. But after a short email exchange, he sent me his number and said, you know, go ahead and call. And I did. And it has, uh, I guess I'll just give you a quick update. It has blossomed into a really wonderful friendship. And, and, and this is the part I really love. It's not just me. I've also connected with his older brother and uh, and have a, a relationship with him and stay in touch with him on a regular basis. And my son, David, who's the one who bought me the 23andMe DNA test kit in the first place, has connected with my biological father and actually traveled to, to meet him and, and to visit with him in person. And, uh, and they hit it off famously. They just they got along great. So now, you know, as long as gas prices don't go to 10 bucks a gallon, we're trying to work out to the logistics of getting the four of us together, my bio dad, his brother, and me and my son David, and uh, see if we can all meet up. And I think it's going to happen, and I'm really excited for it. And I'm sharing this with you only because I need to remind myself and hopefully remind 
you as well, there are some really positive things that are happening. Despite all the craziness that's going on, there are good things to be found. Sometimes you have to look for them or just be open to them. But I just, man, this has blessed my life in ways I never would have considered. And it has been, uh, it's been a remarkable journey. And I don't know, I didn't know that I was missing anything in my life. I felt like things are pretty good. You know, that's really, really no hole in my life. But once I had a line to the information on who my biological parents were, man, I really, I really wanted to know. And I really wanted to connect with them. And, and thankfully, I was able to connect with both of them. And uh, it's it's been a very, very positive experience. So in a darkening world, here's a little uh, little spot of brightness. And, and for me, the, it just reinforces something that, that I've known all along, but sometimes I tend to take for granted. And that is in the, in the big scheme of things, family really is the most important factor, or it, it could be, and it probably should be the most important factor in our lives. All right, I'll hop off the stump here, but uh, I wanted to share that with you just because it, it's it's something that still is is uh, resonating in a very positive way in my life. Let's talk a little bit about uh, something a little less positive, and, and, and perhaps you have, have caught on to this, but it seems like the prospect for political violence in America has been escalating for some time, certainly over the last couple of years. The, the riots of which we must not speak, you know, the mostly peaceful uh, protests, that's in quotation marks, they were, uh, they were a very disturbing insight into how the, uh, the party of chaos, and I'm not necessarily saying that's the Democratic Party, I'm just saying those who thrive on chaos and conflict, man, they, uh, they really were having a heyday a couple of years ago. And we're kind of seeing a, a resurrection of this, <clears throat> in a sense, with the prospect of the Supreme Court issuing a ruling that's very likely going to overturn Roe v. Wade. Now, interestingly enough, they were supposed to release, and I think they did release a couple of uh, of rulings yesterday, but that was not one of them. In fact, they delayed releasing that uh, that ruling. And, you know, I'm speculating, but I just, I want, are they nervous? <laughs> are they worried about what this is going to set off? I hope that's not the case, but I'm also being enough of a realist to know this this political violence is escalating because we are a fracturing country. And I found a wonderful article here from J.D. Tussil. This is on Reason.com, talking about how tensions will not simmer down until Americans stop fearing power in the hands of enemies. Let me put this another way. Government has become so weaponized that elections are not about we need good, competent representation. It's more about we've got to seize power so that we can punish them, because if we don't, they're going to seize power and they're going to punish us. I mean, how much more primitive does it has to have to get? The swords will be pointed at them or the swords are going to be pointed at us. So vote like your life depends on it. Now, this has happened in other societies. It's happened in other civilizations. I don't think it's ever a good thing, though, when government becomes that weaponized. J.D. Tussil says a week after, after a week featuring a House hearing into the Capitol riot, the attempted assassination of a U.S. Supreme Court justice the firebombing of an anti-abortion group, and the arrest of extremists apparently ready to rumble at a Pride Month event, it's fair to say that political violence is now part of American life. He says, with the right and left at each other's throats, the U.S. resembles Italy in the 1970s when ideologically motivated clashes plunged the country into years of turmoil. 
Italy eventually got its problems mostly under control, but the U.S. might suffer less pain by decentralizing power and restraining the state's reach so that people need not fear abuse when enemies win office. He's on to something here, by the way. And frankly, this is a message that has resonated with me for a long time. The problem here isn't so much the opposition party. The problem is that we have allowed government to become so weaponized that when the opposition takes power, all they want to focus on is they've got to punish their enemies. In my opinion, that's exactly what the January 6th hearings are all about. It's about we've got to punish our ideological foes, and and, and that's partly done by labeling anyone who isn't marching in lockstep with us as an ideological foe. It's that that absolutist Sith thinking, you're either with us or you're against us. Oh, wait, that extends to uh, George W. Bush as well. Anyway, political-wise, J.D. Tusil says, Thursday's House hearing into the riot on January 6th was supposed to be the headliner. Video showed people rushing Capitol Police officers and fighting them, tearing down barricades, throwing tear gas, in the words of Reason's Elizabeth Nolan Brown, as they tried to interfere with the count of electoral votes cementing then-President Donald Trump's loss to Joe Biden. But the day before, a California man was arrested outside Justice Brett Kavanaugh's house for attempted murder. That threat was cut short when the would-be assassin turned himself in. And he was reportedly motivated by pending decisions regarding abortion and gun rights and targeted one of the conservative justices who've been on the receiving end of protests at their homes after a leak of a draft opinion that would overturn or that could overturn Roe v. Wade. And then on Tuesday, prior to the drama in D.C., a center near Buffalo, New York, operated by the anti-abortion group Compass Care, was firebombed. This is one of several such incidents in recent weeks. In May, there was a similar arson attack in Madison, Wisconsin, for a group calling itself Jane's Revenge, claimed responsibility as part of a campaign to force the disbanding of all anti-choice establishments. On Friday, there was another attack in Gresham, Oregon. And to cap things off, on Saturday, 31 members of Patriot Front, a white nationalist group, and I'm going to add this uh, addendum, uh, possibly filled with feds, (laughs) that uses fasces as a symbol, were arrested in Idaho near an LGBT pride parade. They were uniformed, their faces covered, traveling in a rental truck. They had shields, shin guards, and other riot gear with them, including at least one smoke grenade. So it was a busy week for a certain definition of busy, says J.D. Tusil. And these recent incidents are only the latest in a series of violent assaults across the political divide in a country in which people with conflicting views are too often no longer opponents but enemies who fear and and despise each other. Support for partisan violence today is similar to what it was early this year or even a little bit higher. In February, 20% of Republicans and 13% of Democrats said violence was at least a little okay. That's according to political scientist Nathan Calmo, He pointed this out to actually last summer in June, 24% of Republicans and 19% of of Democrats said the same. Now I got to tap the brakes here because we're coming up on the break, but uh, let's take a quick pause for uh, some commercial content. We'll come back and revisit this article from JD to seal. There is a link in my show notes at the Brian Here's the question I'd like you to keep in, in your own mind. Do I need to be enemy-driven just because it appears so many other people are? I sincerely hope the answer is no, and I'm going to do my best to persuade you not to be enemy-driven in your thinking. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. A quick shout-out here to lifesavingfoods.com. I don't know about you, but I saw a list yesterday. My friend Ruben uh, shared a list with me of 95 different instances in the last year, maybe even less time than that, of various uh, major food producers being shut down or, or having to kill off entire flocks, like hundreds of thousands of chickens or turkeys. I don't know what's afoot, <clears throat> but I do know this. There is, uh, there is a definite storm brewing that could very deeply impact our food supply. To me, the wise move is make sure you have something in reserve for yourself and for the people around you. You don't have to panic. You don't have to go max out your credit cards, but just be consistent. Get a little store of food put aside. It'll give you options that uh, the unprepared will not have should that uh, storm hit. And since we have the option of seeing it coming, I think this is a really wise thing to prepare for. All right, back to J.D. Seals article, Political Violence Escalates in a Fractured United States. Since the 2020 election and the uh, subsequent Capitol riot, he talks about how this uh, Calmo, um, Nathan Calmo, authored an article warning of the willingness of Republicans and Democrats alike to justify violence to achieve political goals. Now, since then, some researchers have suggested that surveys disengaged from real life over state support for political violence. But they emphasize that any amount of support for political violence is troubling. And, of course, events such as those of the past week offer grounds for concern. Now, the U.S. isn't the first country to face violent political woes starting in the late 1960s into the 80s. Italy suffered battles between far-left and far-right factions that became known as the Anni di Piombo, or Years of Lead. As the 1960s ended, some Italians decided liberalism was doomed, the Economist noted back in 2017. Marxist extremists, notably the Red Brigades, began kidnapping and assassinating anti-worker officials, policemen, judges, journalists. Their right-wing opponents bombed civilians to drown democracy under a mountain of corpses. Both sides hoped to weaken the state and to start a revolution or a military takeover. Members of the Italian Secret Service nudged things along, working with neo-fascist killers to frame the left. Italy eventually broke the terror groups, although it took two decades, and the legacy lingers in politics and culture. Now, he says the U.S. might spare itself from years of similar conflict if it were to address Americans' fear of abuse at the hands of government controlled by opponents who scare the hell out of them. I think he has a good point here. Now, he says we could dial down the tensions by reducing the danger of people being at the mercy of their enemies. We, could, we would need to reverse decades of centralization and expansion of government so that people could live by the rules and arrangements that don't constitute malicious threats. That is, people should be able to escape governance by those who wish them harm so they don't feel driven to extreme measures. J.D. Tussil says there's no clear solution to what appears to be America's own years of lead, but the tensions won't simmer down until Americans stop fearing power in the hands of enemies. That won't happen until government is less powerful, less centralized, and less of a dangerous weapon in the hands of those in office. Now, I know it's really tempting to say, well, this is uh, that's purely the left that is, is trying to, to do this, but it's not. And the political right will, will very much uh, embrace using that government power to punish its enemies if they're not careful. So as with most things, the solution is going to be found at the individual level. And what that means is people like you and me 
have to take care that we do not allow ourselves to be enemy-driven in our thinking. I know for some people it's like, but I have to, right? Because it's do unto others before they do unto you. I get that. I used to have that mindset myself. I don't think it's an effective way to live, though. I think it, what it does is it leaves you looking for an excuse to justify whatever aggression or control you can exert over the people around you. And if you really want to live as a free person, if freedom is a priority, you've got to be able to let go of that need to control others. And I understand that's harder, harder to do than it is to say. But that's where it begins. That little tyrant that lives inside each one of us loves to be indulged. And we've got to starve him into submission. All right. Let me shift gears here again. Um, At the risk of sounding like Chicken Little. um, I wanted to to share an article with you about uh, how the Department of Homeland Security is now telling us that we need to brace for a mass casualty violence as uh, the U.S. enters a summer of extreme chaos. Now, I don't know if they're trying to set in motion some kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. This is what I find really interesting. The uh, the so-called, uh, what were they called, Patriot Front, the guys all in khakis and face masks and, you know, marching around uh, in, in northern Idaho. I have video, and it's, it's from Twitter, of a person interviewing the police who stopped this U-Haul, hauling all 31 of these these. Uh, counter-protesters or these protests or whatever they were um, who were apparently headed to an LGBT pride festival. And this officer said, well, someone asked him, well, how did you guys know this is what was going on? Oh, well, we have informants in the group. And look, I'm not suggesting that these are all feds. They're, they're all glowies, right? They're all glowing. They're just radioactive because they're, they're a bunch of provocateurs. But I would ask you to please keep in mind, most of the plots that the federal government has stepped in and and saved us from, you know, the plot to kidnap, you know, uh, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, um, even even at uh, the Malheur Wildlife Refuge, even at Bundy Ranch, there were numerous informants and provocateurs who were on the federal payroll. So you got you got to at least allow for the possibility that uh, there are people in there straight out of central casting who are playing a role. And I know that the narrative right now, and this is part of the focus of the J6 committee, is, well, you know, uh, uh, the biggest danger that America faces right now is this white supremacist domestic extremism. And for some people, that's, wow, wow, that's scary. Nazis are trying to take over America. And and maybe it's just because I live such a sheltered existence, but this U-Haul full of guys uh, all dressed identically and wearing the same wristwatches and and somewhat organized, apparently on their way to to go disrupt a family-friendly LGBT celebration. Um, I'm very skeptical. (laughs) I don't don't necessarily believe that, uh, yes, this is the big threat. And there are just hundreds of groups like this all over the country. I think there likely are groups that are extreme, maybe perhaps based in white supremacy. But compared to what I have seen and and the footage that continues to come out daily of Antifa, Black Lives Matters, and and other groups that have taken to uh, direct action, smash and grab robberies, arson, assaulting people on the streets, I don't think white supremacy is quite the threat that uh, it's being played out to be. So yeah, if I'm if I'm a skeptic, 
That's the reason why. And now we have the Department of Homeland Security telling us that, oh, yeah, well, we need to be careful. There's, you know, uh, there's going to be a mass casualty violence or, or something like this. I mean, they just issued an advisory warning about this. And and perhaps this is on, on the, uh, the cusp of a Roe v. Wade decision or Roe v. Wade being overturned. Now, look, if, if Roe v. Wade is overturned, let's just keep this in perspective. All it does is it kicks the decision back to the state level. So people who want to get abortions on demand, you will still be able to get abortions on demand. The only difference is going to be some states may take a harder line against that. Just like some states take a harder line against gambling or, you know, recreational marijuana. But it's still there for those who want it. Nothing really changes. But I promise you, the left is already threatening and engaging in violence about this. And the threat is, well, if if Roe v. Wade is overturned, we're taken to the streets and blood will flow. And somehow that's supposed to be overlooked as well. Of course, that's understandable. Why they're just they're just trying to prevent a handmaid's tale from becoming a reality. But instead, we're supposed to look at this uh, this group of of individuals conveniently all boxed up in one place and just there for the police to snatch. Uh, as, as Well, that's evidence of the real threat to America. See, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. I think we will probably see a national temper tantrum of epic size and scope. Probably not a good time to be out there on the streets of our largest cities. I mean, when, when you look around and you see how many of these large cities are having problems with, uh, what are they calling them now, 100% off sales, where mobs just... just you know, they, they overwhelm a store, come in there and either do smash and grab robberies or just uh, just come in and just start looting the place. I mean, for crying out loud in San Francisco and in the Bay Area, they were saying, well, you know, we won't even charge you if it's uh, if it's less than uh, seven hundred and fifty dollars in value. Yeah, we're not even going to charge him with a crime. All I can say is keep your head on a swivel. Be aware of what's going on around you. Don't get caught up in the fear. And above all, don't go taking part in protests and demonstrations. If the false flag is going to kick off, that's the place it's going to kick off. You don't want to be a part of that. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a place where we gather to revel in wrong think. In simpler terms, I am here to help you aid and abet your escape from the virtual prison, the mental penitentiary that is being slowly but surely constructed around every single one of us. Now, not everybody wants to escape, but if you're one of those people who's been looking around feeling like the walls are closing in, I'm here for your benefit, not to tell you what to think, but to encourage you to think clearly and independently, to question everything, question the narratives, sort it out for yourself, and make up your own mind which is the right direction to go, and and what is real and what isn't, what's fact, what's fiction. Oh, I know we have fact-checkers out there, 
Isn't it funny, though, how those fact checkers all seem to agree with the people who are actively constructing that prison around us as we speak? Yeah, kind of a kind of an interesting coincidence. Don't play into their game. I've got some great sponsors who make this show possible, including Dixie Chiropractic. That's Dr. Ward Wagner. Uh, my good friend Dave was just bragging about them the other day. And, uh, you know, Dave has always been an adventurer. As long as I've known him, he is the guy who is out there just, uh, he is living life to the fullest. He's not a daredevil, but he's not somebody who shies away from trying new things. And, and uh, you know, as we get older, and I'm, I'm including myself in this, we don't bounce back as well as we used to. And so he just loves Dr. Wagner and says, man, this guy is like a miracle worker. And if you would like to find out more, I would encourage you to go to Dr. Wagner's website, DixieCairo.com. There's a link to it in my show notes. You can just go to DixieCairo.com. When you talk to Dixie Chiropractic, when you're making your appointment with them, please tell them, hey, I heard Brian talking about you on his show. Well, when I saw that uh, J.B. Shirk, who writes for AmericanThinker.com, had weighed in on the January 6th committee hearings, I was curious to see what his take was. And you know what? I wasn't disappointed. He has a way with words. He has, he has a great gift of clarity. And he definitely lays out how the J6 committee's real target is you. J.B. Shirk says, All I heard from the Democrats' primetime telecast of their J6 Soviet show trial was blah, blah, blah. Americans are racist, Trump's a terrorist, and Congress must tear up more of the Constitution to save democracy. By the way, just as a quick aside, you want to talk about how members of this committee aren't reading the room very well? One of them actually posted a poll on Twitter asking, what would you rather have, cheap gas or democracy? (laughs) By like 96%, it was, I'd rather have cheap gas. Thank you very much. Anyway, lights, camera, distraction. J.B. Shirk says the way-off Broadway tragicomedy produced by state media at once radiated the cheap emotionalism of a soap opera while leaving the ludicrous impression that our exalted leaders are nothing but ventriloquist dummies seeking refuge from a bad vaudeville routine. He says it was difficult not to laugh at the parade of dour faces glaring intently into the cameras with their punishing nursemaid scowls imploring the audience to take them seriously. Even watched on a phone screen, the stage spectacle reeked of sweat, desperation, and community theater amateurness. Like a third-rate Vegas show performed by a mediocre magician, there was no suspense or surprise. Listening to the players read from their corny scripts, he says, I would have thought they'd have been better off just breaking into incantations or hypnotic chants. Abracadabra! Pay no attention to obscene gas prices or the imploding economy. Forget about Hillary's Russia collusion hoax. Never mind that more evidence of a fraudulent 2020 election emerges daily. It's imperative that we take away more of your rights. Free speech is deadly. America, stop following the man with the red hat. It is Congress that loves you. It is we who will keep you safe. Love us. Worship us. We promise to be good masters. By the way, he does have links to the obscene gas prices, the evidence of the fraudulent 2020 election. So if you're looking for some supplemental material, he's not just pulling this out of his ear. You can, you can see for yourself where he's coming from. J.B. Shirk says, What could compel D.C.'s reptilian ruling class to go to such lengths in its attempt to scramble Americans' brains with such overt propaganda? Well, this is obviously the only issue Democrats and their masochistic enablers have in terms of a midterm election strategy. Aside from another round of late-night mail-in ballot dumps and a compliant judicial system eager to rubber-stamp ballots as valid deemed invalid by state law. 
He says, I kept thinking over the last 18 months that the geniuses running America into the ground would come up with a second or third pitch in their 2022 election repertoire. But that was foolish. This is it. The Democrats are still running on nothing but orange man bad. Now, the J6 Soviet show trials are also a revolting effort to justify Congress's unconstitutional attempts to nationalize elections and replace an electoral college that has always provided an instrumental check against concentrated power with the kind of national popular vote that further degrades the sovereignty of the individual states, while making it even easier for institutionalized mail-in ballot fraud to take a flamethrower to what remains of election integrity. He says, I suppose it shouldn't be surprising that the same despots who imperiously seek to expunge the First Amendment's protections for free speech, the Second Amendment's protection of gun owners from government confiscation, and the Fourth Amendment's protections against the national security state's deep deep state's warrantless surveillance of Americans will also rip up Article II's election requirements without a second thought. But he says it still leaves me aghast that so many congressional arsonists take an oath to support and defend the Constitution only to turn right around, douse it in kerosene, and torch it to ash. Now, of course... You can't have a made-for-TV show trial without a menacing villain to defame, frame, blame, and mercilessly maim. And there was never any doubt as to who that would be. President Trump, the great MAGA man who haunts the establishment hive mind's blob thoughts still. If you zoomed in on the theatrical performers meant whenever they mentioned him by name, I swear he says you could see the weaker ones involuntarily quiver. Here was the federal leviathan's umpteenth attack and most serious effort to harpoon and bludgeon the great white whale who frequents their nightmares, consumes them with rage, and torments them into maniacal fits. After six years of vengefully hunting him, only to find themselves repeatedly beaten and thrashing against the rocks, this was Club DC's time to strike and prevail. He says, instead, the whole gaudy rendition of court TV state programming devolved into such a blatantly un-American, dishonest farce that Congress's descent into a dystopic Soviet-era firing squad was shocking to behold. Devoid of due process, authenticated evidence, unmolested testimony, exculpatory defense, or even the pretense of impartiality or fairness, the J6 Committee's perversion of justice left the rule of law stabbed to death on its shiny marble floor, drenched in the blood of half-truths, manipulated video, state propaganda, and outright lies. Anyone who participated should have been ashamed. The J6 clown show made one thing clear. DC's despots hate Donald Trump with the heat of 10,000 suns. They hate his success. They hate his fearlessness. They hate his common sense approaches to America's foreign and domestic problems. They hate that he can't be bullied into silence or submission. They hate that he's beholden not to the globalist Davos clan attempting to conquer the world, but rather to the ordinary American people and their families. They hate that he kept his promises and succeeded when so many others betrayed and failed. They hate that he made America energy independent and more secure. They hate that he respected our borders and put a temporary halt to the Uniparty's half-century hustle to launder illegal immigrants into campaign cash. They hate that he prioritized Main Street over Wall Street, and was effectively returning wealth back to the middle class after 30 years of real economic decline. They hate that he had no interest in endless foreign wars and threatened hostile foreign enemies with quick, decisive action. They hate that he repeatedly demonstrated his love for police officers and members of the military, and that they reciprocated such affection for him. They hate that he proved blue-collar jobs could return, 
that America's decline was far from inevitable and that the keys to American prosperity remain industrial expansion, job creation, and an American manufacturing renaissance, not endless importation of cheap Chinese trinkets, oil, and minerals from foreign dictatorships and trafficked illegal aliens. In other words, the establishment class hates President Trump because he proved them all liars, grifters, and frauds. A touch of Patrick Buchanan, a dash of Ron Paul, a hint of Andrew Jackson, a fistful of Ronald Reagan, and a double scoop helping all his own. Donald Trump represents what all those Washington toadies abhor an unapologetically pro-American president. Now he says, what I took away from this abusive January 6th hearing is that the D.C. establishment is deathly afraid of the American people. Because we have the majority of like-minded voters, Congress is desperate to divide, distract, and dilute. It cannot tolerate J6's visibly demonstrable proof that a powerful coalition has risen. It mu- we must be made to feel small. It reminds me of a prescient tweet President Trump sent out right after House Democrats' first perfidious impeachment. In reality, they're not after me. They're after you. I'm just in the way. As usual, he was right. Okay, now that may come off as very pro-Trump for those of you who are not supporters of Donald Trump. But I don't think he's necessarily wrong. I think it's I think the irrational hatred of the establishment towards Trump is what casts a lot of doubt on not only their impeachments, but the outcome of the election and, of course, the J6 committee. Now, that's just my opinion, but you're welcome to it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Want to give a shout out to HSLAmmo.com. As I was uh, conversing with a friend yesterday, we were watching the meltdown in the stock markets. I, I was looking at the S&P 500. Every single stock was in the red. It looked like the Chinese national flag. It was it was crazy. And, of course, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, was taking a major dive. And and we were just kind of joking around about, well, I'm glad I didn't bet the farm on crypto here. Um, I'm not telling you, by the way, that, therefore, you should never buy crypto. But had to have been kind of a discouraging day for folks who had, you know, bought in big and were hoping to see crypto go to the moon. You know, maybe it will in time. But, uh, wow, that was that was a pretty big uh, dip. And as we were joking around, you know, my friend and I were both noting you know, the people who, uh, who have opted to hold gold and silver probably are smiling right about now. I understand not everybody is into precious metals, but that's, uh, that's something that uh, definitely it's in your hands. It's not something that can be taken away with the stroke of a key on a keyboard or it can't, uh, it can't be, you know, otherwise inflated away from you entirely. It's going to hold some value. And my friend pointed out wisely, you know, the same could be said of lead, copper and brass. So I'm going to just throw that out there for those who are looking for a store of value. Ammunition is actually an excellent store of value. It's divisible. It's barterable. You know, if you can want to break it down into, you know, I'll trade you five rounds of this caliber for a tank of gas. I mean, that's uh, conceivably uh, what, what a person could do. You know, should hard times come, you know, just playing what if. Anyway, HSLAmmo.com. Not just for uh, going out and plinking or building skill with arms, but uh, perhaps not a bad way to uh, store value if you're so inclined. 
Well, it's a fact that people are more generous when they are prosperous. And I got a great article here from Chris Becker. Should governments be bribing seniors to volunteer? This is from the Foundation for Economic Education. And Chris Becker says, donating time is a virtuous activity. He gives some good examples here. Parishioners volunteer for church. Parents help with their kids' school functions. Citizens clean up parks. Some state and local governments have monetized this by offering volunteering seniors a break on their property taxes. Now, while total elimination of this odious tax is the ultimate goal, any reduction of it in the interim will do. But there are a few problems with this type of carve-out. One thing that enables us to volunteer is our prosperity. And despite declarations by some politicos, things are shaky right now. In addition to the eye-watering price of gas, tanking stock markets, and other residual effects of government lockdowns, we're experiencing continued labor shortages. And these property tax discounts exacerbate that problem. In a recent interview, one councilwoman in San Antonio asserted that their plan is aimed at those already volunteering. She said they may as well get credit. The official policy proposal implies otherwise, though. Citing isolation and loneliness studies, it points to the benefits of getting seniors out of the house and how it can stem cognitive decline, among other negative effects associated with aging. As a consequence, they're lured away from the private sector where seniors, like Chris's father, say they feel they still have more to give. But regardless of property tax credits' respective sizes, seniors could still possibly lose their homes, just like the rest of us, if they're unable to pay the balance. Thousands are already more than two years late in ponying up for the taxman. So it's distinctly possible to think that municipalities that seek to be an employer of choice fail to see this link. It points to an underlying concern, the disconnectedness that exists between governments and citizens. When the vast majority of staff and elected representatives favor a more active government, it's no surprise to see official documents tout that tax revenues performed well, even though they weren't earned. Respect for individuals and independent wealth creators ends up taking a back seat. They can dictate the maximum number of participants and reduction they can receive, protecting their own so as not to adversely impact operations. And the media add to this chorus by characterizing exemption savings to taxpayers as what the city loses. But property tax systems essentially amount to little more than social engineering tools. If programs like these work well, governments reserve the power to determine other populations that may be vulnerable. So as public appraisers themselves point out, property taxes are also an instrument for cronyism, given the inequitable uh, favoritism shown to commercial property. The only time politicians extend such favor to homeowners is when their respective states compel them to. Ironically, it's sometimes the state itself that permits levying this tax in the first place. Now, cracking that nut is another task altogether. So for the time being, to paraphrase Chris Rock, just because a municipality can do it doesn't mean it should. Alas, we keep getting the Will Smith smackdown. Political openings do, however, occasionally present themselves. Politicians like to say that their vote is based on the needs of their constituents. Too often that's used to justify taking from some to give to others. Paid sick leave laws come to mind. Chris Becker says when they extend this belief in representative government to please their hearing for property tax relief, voters should pounce. These flexible principles in any newfound religion, from meaningless savings of a 5% exemption to wanting to go big, should be exploited to abolish this antiquated tax scheme for good. 
people are more generous when they're prosperous. Government bribes need not apply. This is refreshing. It's nice to hear someone talk about the idea of eliminating the property tax. I've had this conversation actually with with assessors in pretty much every place that I have lived for the last 30 years. And, and no one has ever given me a really satisfactory answer. Everybody kind of falls back on the, well, this is just the way it is. This is just the way the system is, and that's, that's how it has to be. When I ask, at what point did we allow property tax to become a de facto rent? Because that's what happens. I mean, I, I, I don't want to, you know, instill doubts or undermine your confidence in government. No, I wouldn't want to do that at all. But property tax takes the real property that someone owns, even if they have paid it off, they own it free and clear, it's not really theirs. How do we know this? Because there is a yearly rent that their county or their city or their state may charge them. And if they fail to pay that yearly rent, guess what? The real owner is going to show up with men with guns and badges and kick them out of the property. I know there are those who would maintain, well, now, Brian, that uh, those property taxes provide things that we all need and we all want. And, you know, you could probably convince me that there are some things that might be provided, and I'm thinking, you know, perhaps uh, fire protection or uh, police protection or things like this that people would say, yeah, that's actually essential or that's something I wouldn't want to be without. But there are also a lot of boondoggles that come along with this. And and there's no shortage of bureaucrats, even down to the local level or the county level, looking for ways to spend other people's money. I still don't have a direct answer on when exactly we got away from the concept of what's called allodial freehold. It has to do with the person owning the, the land, really owning the land. They have a land patent which means that this land is theirs. It's not subject to somebody else's taxation. It's not conditional. Well, yes, you're free to live here and you're free to use this land so long as you pay tribute to the state every year. And as I've watched my own mother grow old and, and uh, you know, live on a fixed income, I mean, her house has been paid off for more than 30 years. When my dad passed away, the life insurance policy paid off the house. She has had a secure place to live free and clear, but she still has to worry about those property taxes. And, of course, with the skyrocketing value of properties, of the you know, assessors get out there and, well, you know, your house that you paid $64,000 for now comes in somewhere north of $300,000. And, my goodness, you know, her property taxes reflect that, even, even with an exemption for the aged or the elderly or, or for widows. I'm convinced there's a better way, but I'd really like to get to the bottom of when when did we make that shift? When did it get away from a person owning their property free and clear, having a lodial title to their land and their property, and we switched it into a rental scheme administered by, in most cases, the county? If anybody has the answer, I'm all ears. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. My thanks to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah. 
And if you are landing anywhere in the state of Utah or Idaho, as in you're moving to one of these areas, looking for a home, looking for a home loan, reach out to Heather. You can contact her through the email link I provide in my show notes. You can call her at 435-703-4522. If you're in St. George, Utah, just swing by her office. It's at 619 South Bluff Street. Get the mortgage you need at the best possible rate and count on the experience of the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Heather's NMLS, NMLS ID is 715386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So at this point, uh, we all recognize our dollars are buying less and less every single day. But very few people actually understand why this is so. Got a great article here from the Z-Man. This was published on LouRockwell.com earlier today that breaks down the growing monetary madness that we're experiencing. The Z-Man says a half century ago, President Richard Nixon closed the gold window. American citizens had been prohibited from owning gold since the early 1930s, but foreign governments could exchange extra do- their extra dollars for gold. France tried to make a run on the U.S. gold supply, so the American government was forced to break the final link between the dollar and gold, thus ending the gold standard. And this set off a chain of events that eventually led to what has been known as the petrodollar. Nixon was forced to break the gold peg because it was a fiction. In theory, the amount of dollars in circulation reflected the amount of gold held by the United States. But in reality, the American government had been printing as much money as they thought they needed. The reason the French were racing to redeem their dollars for gold was that they knew the peg was a lie. Once that lie was fully understood, a run on the dollar and global monetary collapse was possible. So it's a good lesson about the reality of the gold standard. It was an example of the old adage that if you need a gold standard to control a corrupt government, that government is corrupt enough to find a way around it. Much of the good living of the post-war years was due to expansionary monetary policy. The cost of that was paid in the 1970s with a spasm of inflation and finally a recession in the early 1980s that supposedly put monetary policy back in order. The thing is, the money printing after the war was not a problem because those extra dollars could find a home in the expanding American economy and most especially in the rebuilding of Europe. The dollar was the world reserve currency, so everyone in the world was willing to take dollars for payment. Europe was in rubble and needed rebuilding, so the demand for dollars seemed endless. As a result, the United States supplied as many dollars as was needed. Now, the Z-Man says the monetary crisis on the 1970s was due in large part to the fact that Europe had recovered and no no longer needed a flood of dollars. The trouble was the American economy was dependent on the expansion of the money supply. The subsequent negotiations that ended with the petrodollar and the Louvre Accords was supposed to solve this problem. Instead, it merely shifted the target for extra dollars to low labor cost areas like Asia and South America. And that's been the story for the last 30 years. American manufacturing, technology and services have been shifted to low cost areas. The extra dollars followed them in the form of investment, thus keeping inflation in the United States low. The dollars not soaked up in these countries came back in the form of investments in treasuries, equities, and real estate. The system let the government expand and asset values to mushroom without creating retail inflation. But he says, like the 1970s, the place for the extra dollars is drying up. That means they are flowing back in the form of inflation. China is no longer the cheap labor economy desperate for investments. 
so they're not soaking up extra dollars. In fact, China is a maturing economy determined to shift from exports to domestic consumption. It's also not willing to accept inflation from the United States and Europe. The result is too much money in the West, creating an inflation spiral. Now, it's not the only reason for inflation. Stimulus policies aimed at sustaining the standard of living against economic reality are a big driver. He says the supply chain crisis that is the result of decades of outsourcing is another driver. Then you have the berserk response to the crisis in Ukraine, which is creating havoc in fuel and energy markets. In a complex system like the global economy, there are always many contributing factors to the things we see in the marketplace. Now, this E-man says one way to look at the current economic crisis as a consequence of the Second World War and is as a consequence of the Second World War and the subsequent Cold War. The half-century-long state of war in the United States and the West resulted in an economic system designed to wage global war without operating a war economy. And when that war ended, there was no great demobilization and normalization. The cost was seen as too high, so American leaders found what looked like a cheap way to avoid it. Unlike the 1970s, the short-term solution for the present inflation is not a contraction of the money supply. The Federal Reserve is carrying millions of assets on its balance sheet, which it has to unload. They will now be selling those into a rapidly declining market as asset prices have been artificially sustained with the combination of free credit and the flows of extra dollars into assets. The Fed could easily set off a collapse in asset values and a global credit crisis if it's not cautious. And the biggest problem facing the country is the lack of competence in the decision-making areas of the ruling class. The economic side is dominated by monetarists who think an economy is just the sum of its money. The political class is full of carny weirdos selected for their entertainment value. Of course, the senior generation has been conditioned to seek good times rather than make sacrifices. America lacks the human capital to tackle the problems we face. The situation facing America is not unlike that which faced the Russians after the collapse of the Soviet Union. The cost of terrible governance over 70 years came home all at once, and they lacked the political leaders to manage it. The Russians not only faced an economic catastrophe, but a political one as well. They went through a decade of chaos, followed by a decade of slow recovery. That's what most likely awaits the United States and its European dependents. I'm sorry, were you, were you hoping that would be some good news? Because <laughs> that's not very good news, but I think it reflects the reality that we're facing right now. And I know that the, the big question on a lot of people's minds right now is, will the Federal Reserve raise interest rates? And if so, how far will it raise them? The harder it is to borrow money, the more it's going to put the brakes on the economy. And I, I know that it's a scary thought, and I'm certainly not wishing any kind of economic hardship on anybody, more so than we're already facing. But at some point, somebody's got to be adult enough to say, we've got we to slow this thing down. And where they're artificially manipulating the interest rates rather than letting the market show what it will bear and what it won't bear, that's why this bubble that's making very funny noises and threatening to pop has grown so immense. I don't know what to tell you in terms of, you know, how do you prepare for something like this? This is out of the control of most of us. We're not the ones making the monetary policy decisions. 
I can tell you that we can look at other countries, though, where this has happened and learn from them. Talk to someone who's lived in Venezuela. Talk to someone who's lived in Argentina. They saw this happen just within the last 15 or 20 years. You could even talk to someone who lived in uh, the former Soviet Union. I remember hearing about uh, when when Russia um, emerged from the Soviet Union. So the Iron Curtain comes down, the Soviet Union dissolves. And I remember reading about a woman who said, you know, they went through their economic difficulties, as, as the Z-Man points out. They had a good 10 years of economic catastrophe, a decade of chaos followed by a decade of slow recovery. And as that decade of chaos kicked off, one of the things that they saw was that uh, there, there was a monetary crisis. So a person who had 2,000 rubles sitting in their bank account had enough money in their bank account, they could buy a car. Now, I don't know if that meant a brand new one. I assume it meant just, you know, a basic car, probably a decent used car. For 2,000 rubles, you could get reliable transportation. But then the, the uh, monetary crisis hit them. And what's the first thing that officials do when something like that happens? Oh, no, everybody's scared. They want to get their money out of the bank. They want to convert it into something tangible, right, before it loses its value. So they declare a bank holiday, which is exactly what they did in Russia. The banks are closed. We have to sort this out. And the banks remained closed for weeks. I think it was at least three weeks, possibly a bit longer. But here's the kicker. When the banks reopened, the person's rubles were still there in the bank. But now 2,000 rubles would buy you a T-shirt. Can you see the problem? I don't know what to tell you in terms of, you know, what should your plan be? You know, be, I don't know what to, what, you can do other than I would strongly recommend don't have all your eggs in one basket. Take a look at what you have, how much money is sitting in the bank and, you know, being eaten away by inflation on a daily basis. I'm not saying run to the bank and take it all out, but I'm saying if you can't get your hands on it, it's probably not really yours. So tangible goods, land, farmable land, especially gold, silver, other precious metals, barterable goods. I think those people will be the happiest when this all shakes out. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I become a big fan of James Howard Kunstler. This guy has the ability to just tell it straight. And and uh, I'm going to warn you right now, this is some straight up tough love. If pride goeth before a fall, I think we are likely in for a major reckoning with reality. And James Howard Kunstler's latest column calls out the national sexual political psychodrama, asking the question, are you proud of yourselves? He says, five-year-old children generally have no idea what adult sexuality is about. He says, America has an eating disorder. Have you noticed? And a touch of the old sexual dysphoria, am I a boy or a girl, has been caught in its room playing with razor blades. Ergo, America is a 13-year-old girl in need of some therapeutic assistance. Who will answer the call for help? Here we are in the fat middle of Pride Month, and he asks, why is it then? that the authorities have sent squadrons of drag queens out across the land like so many flying monkeys. 
flapping and shrieking from the candy-colored forests of Oz to conduct story hours for children. Is America not sufficiently confused these days? Are drag queens really the best interlocutors for the doctrine of diversity and inclusion? Have we nothing better on offer to occupy children's minds, say, learning to bake bread or build a birdhouse? Practical skills they'll need when the economy of Western Civ completes its disorienting descent out of modern times into the new medieval? James Howard Kunstler asks, Does anyone actually know what children think about a drag queen reading, say, My Princess Boy by Cheryl Kilo Davis to a room of five-year-old boys and girls? I mean, apart from what the parents who take them there tell us their children think. They were enchanted. We know that the parents are pretending that this is a wholesome developmental exercise. And yet, let's face it, is it not the whole point of being a drag queen to present a horrifying parody of an adult, female, human, something like women as monsters? Do any of the mommies who bring their children to the drag queen story hour present themselves in public as women the way that the drag queens do? as, above all, sexually super-available? Would, say, the Palo Alto mommy of a five-year-old pause to twerk in the frozen food section of the supermarket on any given afternoon? In that context, what might be the reaction of the other mommies shopping for Hot Pockets in the Ben & Jerry's Chubby Hubby? Five-year-old children generally have no idea what adult sexuality is about. Should perhaps their first exposure to a realm so fraught and complex that many adults don't understand it, be the presentation of women as monsters? And why are the mommies so avid for their children to be introduced to sexuality this way? Are some of the children perceptive and astute enough to suspect that drag queens on display are not really women? That, for instance, they might be men? I mean, a beard can be a giveaway. And might they take that thought a step or two further and ask themselves, why does this man want to pretend to be a monster woman? Why doesn't he want to be a daddy? Are mommies monsters? Can they turn into something like this when I'm not around? Are daddies who try to act like mommies monsters? How exactly is a child supposed to process all of this? On its own, without any inversions, distortions, and misconstructions. Sex is difficult for some young humans to process. By the time they reach the threshold of puberty, say age 13 for girls, the onset of sexual development is so alarming that they attempt to starve their way out of it and cut themselves up. Now he says, of course, we've not begun to probe what might animate a man to present himself to the world as a monstrous parody of a woman. Suffice it to say that such behavior suggests some complicated psychodynamics. And why exactly are they suddenly on display so extravagantly now across the country, supposedly for the edification of children? Well, he says, I'll tell you why. It's not actually for the sake of the children. The children are just pawns in what is actually a national political psychodrama. Or rather, they are hostages. What you're seeing is the party of chaos sending a message to the rest of us, those who are not members of the party of chaos. And the message is, we will take your children and destroy their minds and pretend that it's just another module of their education. And you will know, and we will know, and you will know that we know that this is just a malicious shuck and jive to humiliate you while we wreck the machinery of civilization, which we hate because it requires boundaries and norms to function. James Howard Kunstler says, just think of it. Just days ago, the FDA announced that it accepted Pfizer's application for a COVID-19 vaccine for children between six months and five years old. 
That's the same safe and effective vaccine they've been giving the rest of you for over a year, which has produced adverse reactions and illnesses in rather striking numbers. Do you know why they did that? Well, he says, I'll tell you why. To extend the emergency use authorization that shields Pfizer from legal liability from their mRNA vaccines. Now, he comes right out and says it. They're not content with wrecking civilization. They want to kill you and your children, too. I know that last part may strike you as harsh, but I've never heard a better example or a better summary of, you know, what this whole message is that the party of chaos is sending with this, you know, swarm of, uh, of deviancy that's, that's out there on display right now, aimed at children. We hate civilization because it requires boundaries and norms in order to function. I think that explains a lot. Okay, one final note. I want to share a couple thoughts here from the great Ron Paul on uh, why the Democrats have resurrected insurrection theater. Ron Paul says, this week, U.S. gasoline prices hit an average of $5 per gallon, an all-time record. Officially, consumer price inflation hit 8.6% last month compared to last May. Now, that's a four-decade high. In reality, though, inflation is much higher than that, as anyone who works for a living can affirm. On the foreign front, the U.S. is closer to nuclear war with Russia than at any time since the Cuban Missile Crisis. The Biden administration's policy uh, seems to be urging Ukraine to fight Russia down to the last Ukrainian. Even the mainstream media is now desperately trying to correct its Ukraine is winning false narrative. Most recent polls have President Biden with record low approval rate and Democrats in Congress are bracing for a real beating in the midterm elections in just under six months. With 83% of those polled this month by ABC News, Ipsos, citing the economy as extremely or very important as an issue in determining how they will vote come November, time may be running out for a Democrat-controlled House and Senate. Ron Paul says, with so much going wrong in areas Americans are most worried about, the Democrats have some reason, for some reason, decided that the ticket to electoral success in November is to bring back Insurrection Theater in the form of new hearings on the events of January 6th, 2021. The House January 6th committee even hired former ABC News president James Goldston to make a show of this month's primetime hearings. And he says that makes sense because like all mainstream media productions, these hearings have nothing to do with getting at the truth behind the events of January 6th and everything to do with trying to drum up more partisan anger and fear. What we won't see in the hearings is any of the 14,000 unreleased hours of surveillance. What little we have been able to see so far has raised more questions than answers about the official telling of the events. We also won't hear anything about how many of the insurrectionists were actually government informers or even provocateurs. And we certainly won't get any answers as to why the police actually seem to be opening the doors and inviting people inside. Maybe that's because the January 6th committee is a star chamber, where the only Republicans, the deeply unpopular Liz Cheney and Adam Kissinger, have been hand-selected by Nancy Pelosi. As we've seen over the past two years of COVID lies and deceptions, pushing fear and anger can be very effective in politics, and both parties are guilty. But this time, it doesn't seem to be working. Though all major networks except Fox News preempted their primetime programming to carry the hearings live, Americans did not flock to the production. While the low-ranked MSNBC and CNN did see a boost in viewers, the Democratic Party production hardly took the U.S. viewing audience by storm. As the Daily Caller reported, 
CBS News' Capital Assault hearings had 3.36 total viewership and 780,000 in the 25-54 to 54 demographic, according to TV series finale. He says the Democrats are betting that selling fear and anger is a winning ticket for November. While Republicans share a good deal of the blame for the current economic crisis, pretending it's all the Democrats' fault will likely bring in big returns. Meanwhile, no one at all wants to talk about how the Fed, with the participation of Congress, is leading us to economic disaster. I don't know what Ron Paul's age is now. I know he's well into his 80s. But this guy still is as sharp as ever. You want to talk about someone who has consistently stood for freedom, stood for sound money, free markets, personal liberty, freedom of conscience. This is your guy. And I'm sad that more people don't see that. Uh, you know, there were people, well, you, you, he's just a kook. And, you know, you can call him whatever you want. But if you're going to call him a kook, you should probably be willing to concede. He's a kook who got it right. And that ought to count for something. Hey, if you'd like to subscribe to my show notes, you will find a lot of great reading material therein. Just go to thebrianhideshow.com, click on the show notes. Down at the bottom of the page, you will find a subscribe section. Give me your email address. I'll send you a copy every single day that I do the show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.